Um, but right now, so we're in Matthew, and we're in a mini-series right now on Jesus Christ commissioning his disciples to announce the arrival of God's kingdom into the world. So uh, he has been now for three weeks. This will be the third of three weeks on that. I can move this a little bit farther, I think, here, bro. Um, three weeks on that, and... Um, we're going to finish up today with chapter 10 and the, some of these final things that Christ says to his disciples before sending them out to do basically what he's been doing. Jesus has been doing this too. He's been declaring the, the presence of God's kingdom on earth and demonstrating that through miracles as well and lots of healings. Remember a couple of times already we've seen Jesus or Matthew the, the author just write down that Jesus has not just healed specifically but every affliction possible that you can imagine Jesus has power over and he's been healing the masses. And so demonstrations of the fact that God is heal, here to heal and declaring the fact that God is here to heal as well. Ultimately from sin, that's his main mission. He's demonstrating this though in lesser ways but still significant ways here too uh, by healing people physically from leprosy and paralysis, demonization and all kinds of uh, things, things like that. But now again, he's going to send his disciples out to announce these good things too. Uh, but basically the context here for the last three weeks is that Jesus looks amongst the crowds we haven't seen this yet before in Matthew, but we can presume it. But Matthew is looking about, up, out on the crowds, and he's, and he's having compassion for them like sheep without a shepherd. And so we've, we've looked at that. The context for this is that he has great compassion and love for them, and he is responding by sending his disciples out. So just to recap these last two weeks, where we've been, if you haven't been here, this will help you catch up to speed a little bit. Dave, do you mind grabbing my water there, bro? I forgot to grab that. It's underneath the pew. It's about as hard to get as you can imagine. There we go. Perfect, thank you. Um, and he's been, uh, so basically the recap then is, is so forth. Um, we'll be looking at this idea today of uh, not coming to bring peace actually, but a sword. I'll come back to that in a minute. But here's where we've been. So again, like I said, Jesus has said, I have compassion for the lost. They're harassed, they're helpless. They're people lost in their sin, far from God, threatened by demons and their own hard hearts, headed for an eternity without me, without God the Father. Secondly then, he says, I'm sending my disciples out to express my compassion by preaching and declaring, but also by demonstrating the fact that God is good. He is one, like a shepherd, chases down a lost sheep. That's what God is like. He has compassion for the brokenhearted, the threatened, uh, and especially in a spiritual sense. So that's why he's come. Third, though, beware of wolves. This is last week. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, and they will persecute you. It will happen like they persecute me, and like they will ultimately persecute me soon as the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sheep, sent to the wolves at the cross. So remember, big thing what we're doing to, uh, these last two weeks, we'll see it today as well, is that the Bible makes a strong correlation between Jesus' experiences and ours because he's in us and we're in him. So a lot of times Jesus will just say that. Expect this to happen because it happened to me and I live in you. Expect it. You will be hated by all for my name's sake because I was. And, and many other types of persecution as well. We'll see that today to come up one more time today too. Fourth, uh, but don't fear, be anxious. Hatred's normal and I'm with you and I see what they do to you, which is really just an expression of persecuting me. Persevere, fifth, do not waver from the faith. Some will waver, but make sure that you do not deny me. Persecution is worth it. It's worth it to endure. So it's been a big piece of his encouragement to to his disciples and to us. And then finally, never stop preaching. Your main mission here, we can't control how much we're persecuted for the faith, whether that's a physical type or a verbal type, very subtle or very extreme. Both types have happened throughout the world and from nation to nation, culture to culture, time to time, throughout all time. But we can't control that. 
But one thing we can control is that we can, we can spread the message. We can tell people that Jesus is here. The ultimate lamb who has been sent to the ultimate wolves on the cross has come. That's part of our message. We're going to be persecuted like sheep among wolves, but we have a message of a greater one, that Jesus has come. God has come in form of a man to, uh, to walk among us and teach and demonstrate the kingdom, but ultimately to enact it and be the reality of it by dying on a cross for our sins in our place. Okay, so that's a, that's a recap of where we've been. Today we're going to finish it up with verses 34 to 42. And a lot of things he's already been talking about, but he's going to get more specific here. And so, But just have all this in mind. Jesus is, has great compassion for lost people, and he's sending his people out to express that compassion by declaring how amazing God is, that he's, he's an amazing, loving shepherd. He's going to gather his sheep together to himself, bind them up, and he's also going to demonstrate that through his disciples, through miracles and acts of kindness and love as well. Um, but they will be persecuted. So we're picking up basically from last week and talking about persecution, being hated for the faith, and how these great encouragements we have to not be anxious or fear, partly because he's just saying it's going to happen. A lot of times fear and anxiety come from the fact that we don't expect it. We don't know what's going to come. But Jesus says, if you know what's going to come, you'll be less anxious about it. If you know what's going to happen, if you expect it even, you'll be less fearful. And so a lot of this is just trying to ease our concern a bit about even severe forms of persecution that some of us will face, and if not us in this room, uh, the greater church around the world. As I mentioned last week that 300 Christians about die per day, mostly in Africa, but really globally, it's about 300 per day on average, which we don't hear a lot about. Uh, But for the faith, not just dying, but for the faith, they are persecuted unto death. And so globally speaking, this is very, very, very true. People are being persecuted unto death like Christ was, Not in the same way, but a related way because he is in them. Christ is still expressing the fact that he is the ultimate sheep sent to the wolves uh, to die for the sins of the world through his church. It's one thing he's he's doing around the world. All right, so have all this in mind. Let's just read the entire passage today, verses 34 uh, to 42. Verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. All right, let's pray to begin. God, thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you for speaking to us in the Bible on these terms. We're in a series here that's very real, very raw, very honest about the nature of mission, both in terms of what we are to speak and demonstrate and also what we are going to experience, no matter how subtle, no matter how loud and explicit. That's very clear. Uh, you get very clear in your word about what that, what that is and what it's going to look like. So thanks for preparing us for mission and encouraging us. Some of us have been on mission with the church for years. Some of us here are brand new Christians. Some of us aren't even Christians yet. Uh, But God, you still speak and express the gospel of of the center of the faith through teachings like this. And so, God, I pray wherever we are spiritually, we'd be encouraged to mission, encouraged even in our persecution, even in the fact that we've been abandoned by family, some of us here, 
uh, because of the faith. Or there's just weirdness in our family because of the faith. Wherever we are, though, God, I pray for some encouragement to be centered back on you and to remember the cross today. It's all about that, so as always. So bless our time, and I pray it in your name. Amen. All right, so let's go back to the first verse here, verses 36 to 30, uh, 34 to 36, but we'll look at verse 34 to begin. This first section's here just for these first few verses, and then he switches gears. But the first thing he's saying basically here in verse 34 is that uh, don't think that I've come to bring peace. Jesus is saying this. I have not come to bring peace to the earth. I've actually come to bring a sword. So, and I like how he frames it too. Don't think, I know some of you are thinking that I came to bring peace, but don't think that. Uh, I've actually come to bring a sword uh, to the world rather than peace to, to the earth. So, so difficult teaching right off the bat, right? It's like, what is he getting at? I was telling Jacob this morning, it's like, this for some reason, go figure, it wasn't the first verse that, you know, people have you memorize when you're in Sunday school. For some reason, I can't believe it, you know? But it just isn't. Uh, but it's in the Bible, right? This is something Jesus said to all of us, to his disciples first, who are thinking about these things and being confronted with persecution initially, uh, but then it, it's, it stems into our experience as well. But, but very difficult teaching, especially when we contrast it with other teachings of the Bible. If you know anything about why Jesus came into the world at all, uh, you know that he came to bring peace. And so if that's the backdrop to this, this makes it all the weirder. But if some of the things that we contrast it with are, are verses like this. It gets, like I said, it gets stranger. We'll have to qualify this in a minute. But look at what it says elsewhere, especially even in one of the gospel accounts, Luke, in connection with Jesus' birth, the angel announces, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So one of the first things that's, that's pronounced angelically in connection with the arrival of God on earth is peace. What does this mean? Peace between God and people. So be at peace. The war between God and man is almost over. I have come to end it because I'm going to take sin away forever. So you want to know what Christ came for? This is the first glimmer we get, one of the first ones. Old Testament, of course, is full of this too. But in terms of a New Testament sense, one of the first things pronounced is peace to the world because God has become a man. So that's the first thing. Second thing gets more specific. In Romans 5.1, another New Testament book, the Apostle Paul wrote, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified or made righteous or perfect before God by faith or by our trust in him, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, Paul says what's alluded to early on in Luke 2 when Jesus was born into the world is made very explicit here in Romans 5. What did Jesus make possible? Peace between us and God. Ends the war. Disarms us. No more rebels before God, at least for those who believe. We're all rebels before him. We've all disobeyed. We've all gone our own way. But what Paul says here is what Jesus does is he ends it. He makes communion possible again with the creator and the created, with the perfect and the unholy and the wretched like us. That's why he came. And that's even not as explicit as he gets elsewhere. In Colossians 1, he gets even more explicit in terms of how that's done. In verses 19 and 20, he says, For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So how did it happen? The cross. How did peace occur between God and people? Jesus, made, Jesus died so that was possible. His bloodshed takes sin away, takes that obstacle between us and, and God away, and makes communion possible again. 
So that's how he makes peace. So the scriptures clearly present Jesus as this peace offering type savior. He's a peace offering, like Israel had of old in terms of part of their worship before God. He's the ultimate one. When he dies, it's a peace offering to God the Father. It's substitutionary. Our sins are taken away. Death is overcome through the resurrection. And perfect, perfect relational connection now with God is possible again. So in this way, we could look at many more today as well, but in this way, Jesus did come to bring peace into the world, right? And you could even say, he didn't just do that. He came to, to remove the sword and put away swords forever and ever. So when we get to Matthew 10, it's this flip on this, right? So we have to ask the question, in what sense is it true that Jesus does not bring peace into the world? And note the action word here too. Jesus is the one doing this. Jesus says, I'm going to bring enmity. I'm going to bring the sword between two different types of people in the family context. So it's not just going to happen. I'm actually going to do it. And I think what comes along with that is that my message is going to do that. The fact that I am saving is going to do that. The fact that my message is offensive and it humbles all is going to, is going to do that. So that's how it's going to be done. We'll come back to that in a minute. But we have to ask that question, right? How is it not bringing peace? Because he can't be, of course, teaching here that he's somehow unaware how his death will bring the greatest peace the world's ever known to all mankind. Can't conclude that, but rather we see in context he's talking about people here, right? Different kind of peace. We see in context that Jesus is talking about bringing unrest between his people that he's claiming for himself and saving from sin and transforming who have a message to bring to the world that is a message of peace but also a message of, of offense and the people of, of the world. Or it could be stated this way. Jesus' firm commitment to his primary objective of bringing salvation to sinners and peace from God to them inevitably results in a clash between the saved and the unsaved. So his primary objectives and he has these other objectives or fallout from that objective. And so we have to have these things in order with what the rest of the scriptures say. His primary objective of saving, saving lost sinners inevitably creates a clash between those saved that are saved and the unsaved. So that's how Jesus can say both, I've come for the greatest peace the world has ever known, but I've also come to bring the sword because my message will inevitably do that. And again, it's striking here that family's in, 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 in focus, right? Last week we talked about persecution on a broad level, but it's striking that family's such a big part of this today. Remember last week, I'll recap verse 21. Jesus said last week, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And this week in verses 35 and 36, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So what I want to do then is just recap this whole spectrum idea we talked about last week too. Remember last week we said, just like there was a spectrum in terms of broad persecution, so in terms of some people will be killed for the faith, other people will be passed over for a job race or for a job interview because they're Christians. It could be some verbal, subtle persecution that happens whether in the family or with friends or strangers or whatever. Whole spectrum the church has been experiencing for all church history. And so just like there's a spectrum there, there's also a spectrum to this more specific kind of familial persecution as well. Everything, for example, from a Muslim family seeking to kill their Christian convert son to bring honor back to their family, to parents disowning their daughter for converting to the faith, to just distance, perceived distance between family members being 
uh, created due to the faith of one of them, to awkward thanksgivings and Christmas times because a Christian of the family is sharing the gospel with his or her family over the holidays. Whole spectrum, right? Some of you guys have experienced uh, some of those things, on that latter end of the spectrum especially. You've experienced that tension. You are a new creation, a new person, and your family's perceived that, and it's just created this oddness and weirdness in your family at times, a sword-like thing that Jesus is talking about in your families because of it. Or even on a subtler level, we've had this happen here in our community. A lot of churches have this too. Uh, But even on a subtler level, the type of Christianity that we're pursuing sometimes can cause strife. So not just the fact that a person is pursuing Christ on a broad level, but the type of Christianity that they're pursuing can cause unrest or sword-like stuff in a family context. And by type, I mean the true biblical type of Christianity that consists of belief and repentance in the gospel. It centers itself on the cross. And that versus more of a moralistic approach to Christianity. So if, if people are hearing and believing in and repenting in light of this type of Christianity, a true biblical kind, and their background is this, and their familial background is this, it can create some of that, some of that strife. Or more specifically, we've had people here at Hiawatha who have pursued the faith, and they would say for the first time, and baptism in connection with their conversion, and that is rubbed wrongly against some of their parents' faith and their perspectives, in that it's butted heads with their more moralistic faith that believe that people were born into Christianity and it had little to do with conversion. You guys see the difference? If your background is people are born into Christianity because you just start going when you're a kid, you're baptized as an infant, and, and the parents are Christians, so they inherit the church, they inherit the faith basically through blood, and then later in life, they go to church where they hear that, no, you're, you come to Christ and you're converted when you're born again. You have to be born a second time. We, we don't get saved through, through bloodline. We get saved through, through believing in the blood of Christ washed over us. And that's a big difference. We've had that here. So types of Christianity are true biblical conversion-centered or baptism-centered types of, types of Christianity can also create some of that sword-like stuff uh, in the family context, too. We've seen that happen here on on several occasions. All right, but let's move on. Jesus continues here. So he's not just saying in context here that this is going to happen. That's a piece to it. In part, he's saying there will be sword-like stuff that happens relationally in the family context. You will have enemies, and he's talking in a broad sense here. Not the same for every every one of us. Some of us have strong, Jesus-loving Christian families. But in terms of the broader church, this is happening globally today, right now as I speak. There are Christian families plotting to kill their sons or daughters because they converted. Right now as I speak, families are disowning their kids because they've made Jesus the most important thing of their life and they've said, I love you mom and dad, but you're not as important. And they're disowning. And right now as I speak, other forms of Christianity, and this this can be applied, or persecution, this can be applied to anything, not just the family, but friends and strangers and uh, other other contexts of our life relationally as well. But here he's talking about family. This is going to happen, is the first piece. But as he goes on, this is also a word for believers as well. It's also a word for Christians, because in part, this is on us. This type of divide is partly on us as well, and it's partly our responsibility. The sword, in other words, will come through a Christian's relentless allegiance to Jesus as well. In part, he's saying you can't control this. Once you start to profess Christ, it's going to happen on whatever level. Another side of this thing is you have to understand that I am more important than your family. And as you pursue that, as your allegiance shifts from family or spouse or whatever it is, 
to Christ, that's going to create unrest if they're unsaved, if they're of the world. Because they won't understand. He's just saying it's going to happen. So let's look at that latter thing now then. So he shifts gears a bit, like I said, verses 37 to 39. This is where Christ talks about loving Jesus more than family here, actively. And losing our lives in that. Taking up the cross and dying to our old selves in that and our ambitions, and our our former loves. Although we can continue loving family, of course, really kind of a former love in one sense, because our love for Christ so much supersedes love for anything else in the world. So look at verse 37 first. So Jesus says here, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So I just want to invite you guys to to look at that for a second. Look what God says to us. Look what Jesus says to us today. This is the words of Christ himself, saying this to his church. He's making it very clear. Love cannot be challenged for me. And he says elsewhere in the Gospels that that you can't love money and God at the same time. You have to be single-eyed or single-minded in how we approach these things because you can't serve two masters. It's impossible. There's only one master of our lives at any given time. And really, in a, in a biblical sense, it's God or something else. So, and here he brings family into family. And family's a tough thing. Family is actually a little bit more of an intimate thing across the board in the first century than it was for us today. This is, this is still hard for us to hear. But for Jesus' first audience, this would have been even more tough and, uh, and more offensive. But he just says, whoever loves mom or dad, son or daughter, more than me is not worthy of me. And one thing I want to do here, too, is if you've been here for the series so far, you know that every once in a while I like to just stop here and note how teachings like this, although they aren't necessarily saying, I am God, explicitly, they kind of are in the subtext. Because who says, love me more than your parents? Love me more than your spouse? Love me more than your kids? And if you don't, you're not worthy of me. Who says that, right? This is not just a good guy here, in other words. The Bible does not afford us the option to say he was just a good guy, a moral teacher, a prophet. They don't say stuff like this. Either he's God himself demanding all allegiance, 100% from our lives, or he's a lunatic or a liar, right? There's no middle option. Who says stuff like this? He's crazy or he's the son of God, the savior of our souls. So in the subtext here, I think, is declaring to us, and I encourage you guys to do this when you read the Gospels sometimes, just mark it when you see it. There's a bunch of them in the Gospels. Is There's the teaching, but in the subtext there is, I am God. I'm not just telling you how to live your life better here. I'm here to do something that no teacher can do, no moral man can do, no guru can do. I'm here to die for your sins. There's something much bigger going on here than a list of rules. This is, this is part of the subtext of the narrative. So got to see this today. Jesus is God, not just a guy. All right, let's go back, though, uh, to the passage. So we've got to talk about what this means and what it doesn't mean. So what does it mean to say that Jesus, uh, or when Jesus says, love me more than your family, more than your mom and dad, your kids, uh, what does that not mean and, and what does it mean? So just to be clear, this does not mean that we cease to love our family entirely or cease to hang out with them or cease to serve them. Uh, but it does mean that our, because we know from the rest of scriptures, right, family's a big deal. God makes marriage. One of the first things he does after creating the world is create a marriage. Creates a man, creates a woman, and weds them. The word wife is used in the second chapter of the whole Bible. Isn't that crazy? 
I love that. I mean, you know right off the bat that God has a plan for marriage. He creates it. And he's a plan for it. We see in the New Testament that Jesus is the fullest expression of that plan, being the ultimate bridegroom and the church being the ultimate bride. That's what ultimately marriage is Marriage is about. So we know that family is at the heart of God. Love is at the heart of God. Sacrifice in the context of family relationships, maybe especially, is at the heart of God. God calls himself Father for a reason. He wants families to exist to impart imperfectly, but to at least impart in good, healthy relationships, fathering relationships, to express something about himself. So, so it's not saying that we cease to love family or to spend time with them, but it does mean that our first allegiance is to Christ and his gospel, not to family or generally to a sense of relational comfort. You guys hear that? That's really important. Uh, it, this does mean our first allegiance is to Christ, his gospel, the, the good news of his death and resurrection, not to family or to a general sense of relational comfort. So I think a good correlation could be made here between all the stuff we're talking about today and citizenship. So in other words, as Christians, the Bible actually calls us to be good citizens of whatever respective country that, that we live in. It teaches that we are to pray for leaders, pray for those above us, for governors, for emperors, and, and pray for God's blessing on them to help them lead and so forth for their conversion. Uh, but also that our submission to earthly governing authorities is a reflection of how much we submit to God. So if a Christian's not submissive at all to their own governments in any capacity, it doesn't say a lot of good things in terms of their submission to God. So if we're just this lawbreaker all over the place, kind of oil and water. So, so that's a big, strong thing there. But this is, if this, this is only the case until the government requires them, Christians, to somehow deny their faith. If the government comes and says, deny your faith, do something inconsistent with your faith, what the Bible says, then the Christian willfully disobeys the state for the sake of obeying their true king, their true president, their true governor, their true country, Jesus Christ. So kind of a both and there, right? It's the same with family. We're called to love our family, but if, if family gets in the way of us in Christ, we willfully reject the family. We go the other way than the family for the sake of obeying Jesus and pressing the gospel into other people's lives and working out our salvation with fear and trembling, like Paul says in Philippians 2, and praying and being in the will of God and just being on a mission as Christians. All that's number one, and, and family's after that. So if, if that gets in the way, love our families, but if it gets in the way, then make this clear separation, just like we would, again, in a citizenship-type setting in terms of being a citizen of the U.S., but really being a citizen of heaven, the scriptures uh, declare us to be in. So, Or, just to put it simply another way, love for family always exists underneath the greater banner of, of love for Christ. So just have to have that in mind, and it's tricky. Working that out is very abstract sometimes and tricky, but couple of things here. I think one of the ways that the opposite of this plays out sometimes, and we're all of issues here, all of us, no matter what your family's like, loving, Jesus loving or not, uh, they, there can be a stumbling block issue here. But I think one of the ways I think this plays out, the opposite of it anyway, plays out in our culture, is that our spirituality is at times tempered by our family. And specifically, I think our parents, a lot of times. Mom and dad worked out their spirituality this way. They believe this, this about God. And so it affects, the, affects what we might think, even to, to, the, uh, to the negative side, um, for the worst side uh, at times. Mom and dad would be a bit hurt or offended if I pushed my faith on them, so I'm not going to do it. Or mom and dad, if I chose to get baptized, would be offended because they baptized me as an infant. 
so I'm not going to do it because of what they might, what they might think. Or if I chose a job with lesser pay but more free time uh, so I can invest more in the church, my dad would be pretty disappointed with me because he helped pay for part of my college career or part of my college education and he, th- he thinks I should go here, but I really want to go here. I, lo- I love this line of work, but I also want a little bit more free time. A little less pay, but a little more free time to invest in, in the church. But in all those things and maybe many more, your parents will look down on it or other people in your family. And it's at that point where a Christian should say, I love Jesus more. I love the gospel more. I love the church more. I'm more, I'm more a part of the family of the church than I am to my nuclear family. That's a huge thing, actually, Jesus is going to come back to a little bit later in Matthew, so I'm going to save some of that for then. But Jesus is clearly, if he's a model here in part for this, he's clearly spending much more time developing disciples and building the church than he is with Mary and Joseph, right? We don't even see Mary and Joseph really come up here at all, except the early parts of the gospel. So a Christian is called to, part of our identity is our family, for sure. Love the family. Family's good. But God created it. But at the same time, uh, the Christian, Jesus being the first fruits of this, is called away from that. Like a, like a groom and like a bride, before they get married, they're called to leave the family and become, and become a new family. It's the same in the church. We're called to leave in a lot of ways. Leave and cleave to Christ. And the church then is this, and, and the mission of the church is a priority over the family uh, for clearly here in Matthew 10 it is, and it's a picture of what would even become more a reality later after he dies on the cross for our sins. Another angle on this, especially for those of you here here thinking, yeah, I hear all that, but I have Jesus-loving Christian parents. But another angle on that is to say, if that's you, is to think, how is my love for Jesus actively surpassing my love for my family? And the key there is actively, because biblically, love is always an active idea. But basically, every Christian would say, uh, yeah, I acknowledge this up here. I know it's in the Bible somewhere, but what does it mean to actively show my love for Christ and his church, his people, uh, over, my, over my family. So, a couple things there. First, we can just ask if that's the case, because some of you might be here thinking, actually, if you're honest with yourselves, you don't. You don't have love for Jesus Christ and what he did for you. That doesn't surpass your love for your family. So if that's the case, acknowledge that in your heart. Just repent, come back to the cross, and get in a place where you learn more about Jesus to the point where it's, it, is pri- it, it is primary. Love for Christ comes from the Bible. It comes from reading about who he is how much greater he is than all earthly relationships, all other fathers and mothers and husbands and wives. He's just better relationally. And so acknowledge that. But the second thing is, a lot of you are there though, you would acknowledge love for Christ is greater. If that's the case, then ask, how is my love for Christ actively prioritized over other loves in in my life? Love is active. And also I'd encourage you guys too to not not think about your life, sometimes this this is the way we think about it, in terms of like being a pie chart, and part of that pie chart is the Jesus pie, the Jesus pie piece, or the church pie piece, or the spiritual pie piece. And then we've got, you know, hobbies like gardening or whatever it is over here, and then, uh, you know, sports. Then we've got jobs up here and, and different things like that. If we think about church that way or spirituality that way, it will always be confusing immediately because we'll start thinking about this passage and we'll think, you know, 99% of my life, I feel like, is at work. I'm behind a desk and I'm with my family. So... Am I, am I really called to not work anymore or to not eat or to not mow my lawn or, or any of that stuff? And the, the answer is no. The point is, trash the pie chart, put the cross all over the pie chart or keep the pie chart, I guess, and just put the cross all over the pie chart or put it right at the center. Infuse everything you do 
with the presence of God in your mind. Or with, with uh, if, you're, if you're a parent, don't stop parenting, but parent in a way that would give, give God glory and that would bring the word of Christ into your relationship with your kids or your spouse or at, work, at the workplace. See how every part of your life is a context for, is a chance, like we're reading here in Matthew 10, an opportunity to declare and demonstrate the fact that Jesus is king and he has died for the sins of the world. Demonstrate that through kindness and love. Declare it through your words. See, every, every area of your life is a, is a venue, an opportunity for, for that. That's, that's how we love Christ over everything else, but still are able to receive all these other things as gifts from God and keep them in our life at the same time. Otherwise, it's like we have no capacity to understand how these things can still be good, how they can still be, how they can still be gifts of God and so forth. So infuse everything with the presence of Christ, with memorization of Scripture. There will still be a time where you say no. You'll stop things in your life for the sake of prioritizing Jesus. That's okay too, but we just can't say that about everything at all times, or we'll just do nothing in our lives. We have no permission to do anything, ever, uh, except um, pursue Christ, which, which of course is much broader than what we think a lot of times. So, All right, a couple of other things. Then with verses 38 and 39, uh, and whoever does not take his cross up and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Big thing here is just, Jesus is just saying, the gospel, when it calls you, when I call you, I bid you come and die. It's a famous quip by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor of, of old. Love it. He says, when, when Jesus calls a person, he says, take up your cross. He's basically saying what that is. It's, it's executionary imagery. Take up your cross and walk with me and die to your old self. So, in other words, it's not, not about you anymore. Where's Highland? Skip a heartbeat there. Sorry, brother. <laughs> uh, it's not about you anymore. The gospel bids us come and die. So if that's the case, uh, then, then we have to live as though that's true. Like, we're not alive. It's not about us. Not about us. When we're saved, we're saved from sin, and the epitome of sin is really self-worship. And so one of the things that Jesus is doing for us when he saves us is he's freeing us from the tyranny of self from thinking about ourselves all the time. So we can be more focused on Jesus and other people. And so that's really it. It's not just what we do, some bad things over here. It's, it's this core issue of rebelling against God and setting up the idol of self on the throne of our life. And if that's what Jesus saves us from, then we're going we're gonna to take up that cross and die to ourselves. And, and in this context, bringing the family back into it, it just means leaving the old, clinging to the new. Again, like a man and woman leave their families and become one with each other, it's the same with Christ. We leave the old behind and we take on the, the new identity. Family is a part of identity again, but Jesus and his church are supreme identity, however. And so going back to persecution then the sword idea, if that's the case, we should not be surprised if a sword comes between us and unsaved, ununderstanding family members. It's just going to happen. If your priority is Christ, it's supreme allegiance to him, you just shouldn't be, and that's your, that's your main family. Shouldn't be, shouldn't be shocked or surprised if a sword comes between us and an unsaved family. All right, a few more things on this last few verses. I'm not going to read it entirety, in its entirety to begin or to end here, but verses 40 to 42, response. So basically what this last passage is saying, it's an example of positive response to, to mission, which reminds us of the whole point of what Jesus is getting at here. He's just saying, some will receive your message. Others won't. I mean, really, he said a lot of stuff, but it boils down to that. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus and to preach the gospel to people, however formally, however informally, and to demonstrate that, many will receive, 
many will reject. And even in the family context, the people closest to you love you most. That will, that will be the case. And when people reject us, he's saying here too, they reject Christ actually because he's so much in us. And when they receive us, they're people in our message, they're actually receiving Christ because they're receiving our message, which is the essence of, of why he came. But the point here again, like I said, is the, the outcome of mission. So some will reject, some will receive, but the mission, going way back a few weeks ago, is to tell people about a Savior. It's basically all he's saying. I, remember, I have compassion for lost sheep. Go express my compassion by saying to them that I am here to save you. Go express that I love them by saying I'm here to set up my kingdom. I'm going to destroy their enemies. I'm taking care of all of the wolves forever. Tell someone and demonstrate that. Demonstrate that I came to heal them from their sin by healing them physically. I'm giving you authority to perform healing miracles. But that's not the epitome of why I'm sending you. I'm sending you primarily with words. They need to hear about me. They need to understand and have faith that what I'm about to do on the cross is the ultimate act of shepherding of all time. I'm going to bring them in. I'm fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament here. I'm the one. That's why I can speak so authoritatively here about love and priority and about the authority of miracles and about being the ultimate one true shepherd. Now, everything else is underneath him. He's God. He can say those kinds of things. So he says, go, go pronounce. That's the mission we have as well. What the disciples are doing here is a type or a picture or a drop in the bucket of what we get to do now because our mission is much more explicit. They're just saying, go announce the kingdom of God is near. All those things I said are, are here in shadowy form. Ours is much more explicit. We say, here's how the kingdom of God is here. God died for you. Here's how the shepherd is shepherding. He died on a cross for your sins and slayed wolves when he did that. Slayed your sin. That's how he's doing all of this. We get much more clear. It's very explicit. So our mission is actually all the more called to preach and proclaim from the housetops and tell our neighbors and friends and family members just to go and bring good news to people so that they too can have faith in that shepherd to be saved. One last thing I wanted to help you see too is... uh, like we've been doing these past two weeks, is seeing how when Christ talks about stuff like this too, he's not just stating a fact, he's teaching something about himself. And so, like last week we said, when we talk about, when we look at ourselves and how we're persecuted or experience persecution as a sheep among wolves, like Jesus said we would be, uh, it makes us think, at least in part, part of the point of that is to remember Jesus. Like I said before, he's the ultimate sheep sent to the ultimate wolves on the cross. Here this is the case too. When we experience familial rejection, we experience rejection relationally, in part, it points us to the cross because he did all of that. You could say that he brought the sword on himself for us. Hebrews 12 says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He endured it in our place. He was even forsaken by his heavenly father on the cross. Mark 10 says, this is one of the last words of Christ on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So even here, though it's obviously not a one-to-one correlation because we can't say God the Father is sinning by rejecting Jesus, but we can say Jesus experiences on the cross familial rejection, right? Jesus is experiencing reject, or abandonment from God the Father on the cross. It's one of the things he bears for us. So the point is, Jesus is not just taking our sin on himself on the cross. He's taking the banishment from God that we're all born into on himself in our sin on the cross. That's what he experienced. He died in our place. Partly what he's experiencing is separation from God the Father. He's God the Son, part of the triune God, but 
He's experiencing this separation. That's why he says, why have you forsaken or abandoned me on the cross? He's taking all the banishments, the separation, the war that we just inherited, that we were born into in terms of being against God. He took all that upon, upon himself. It's the great biblical problem that God is fixing here throughout biblical history. God's over here and we're over here and we can't get to each other. That's what God's fixing. So it makes sense that he would bear banishments. He would say, why have you forsaken me? He's bearing all the separation for all of humankind, all, for all time, on himself, on the cross, and he's making it possible again to, to get back to him. So if that's the case then, as we experience rejection in our lives, which is difficult to experience, especially on that familial level, we never ever have to fear rejection or abandonment or forsakenness from God again. I mean, if you guys ever feel distant from God ever, Look to the cross. Look to Mark 10, 34. Remember the last words of Christ? If you ever fear, feel distant from him, look, look and said, that's what happened on the cross. And because of that, I'm never going to be distant from God ever again, if I believe. Ever. He's so close to you, he lives inside you. The only sense to which we'll be closer is when he appears face to face. But the Bible is clear. He's one flesh with us now. He lives inside us by his spirit. So if you ever, ever feel distant from him, look to the cross and say, that happened. That happened. So I'm never going to ever going to be distant from him, from him again. One of the songs we sing too, which we're not singing today, but uh, one of the one hymns we sing talks about not fearing our banishment from God anymore. And so some of you have been banished or forsaken by family, rejected, persecuted, but you never have to fear being rejected by God again because you are in his son. Ever. You're safe from your sins and they have no, no, no more hold on you. And for a lot of you, that, that is, that's the most important thing we talked about all morning right there. The context of familial rejection is the ultimate Savior. The one forsaken by God the Father for a time, all planned by both of them amongst the Trinity to take away sin, to take away rebellion, to take away banishment of us from God forever and ever and ever and ever. That's the gospel. And that's what we get to hear now explicitly and we get to experience a little bit of and get reminded of when we are in Christ experiencing rejection from family. It's just a small reminder that, oh yeah, this is what Christ kind of experienced a little bit from his physical family, from, from people of Nazareth, his hometown. But even in a spiritual sense, he, he brought banishment upon himself on the cross uh, to, to take, take that away from us. He bore it in our place. So again, returning to the main point here, which is mission, this Christ we're talking about here right now is the center of our message Go tell someone. He went through torture and rejection for us. And we're just going to experience that too in our life because he's inside of us. So just be encouraged. Keep preaching. Don't fear. Uh, God says, like he said last week, I'm always, always with you. I'm never, ever going to leave you or forsake you. I've taken care of all of that. So be encouraged. You're, I'm in you. You're saved from the wolves, but I'm also sending you out among them because you gotta keep, we're going to keep experiencing this. The, my plan of salvation is going to unfold in stages here. It's not going to be a light switch. It's going to unfold in stages. You're completely saved, but you also will be protected and suffer. You'll be protected, but you're going to suffer amidst some of this stuff as well. So just be encouraged, but be on mission. All right, let's pray. God, thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for the gospel in this passage, for reminding us, Lord, that you are the, the ultimate rejected one. You are the ultimate one, Father, who has gone to the cross. You, has gone, you have gone as a, a sheep and a lamb to the wolves, been sent to the slaughter. The scriptures are clear. 
uh, God. So I pray that we'd be encouraged in that today, that you've done that for us. And not just that, but you've, you've experienced rejection and abandonment. You've experienced separation from God the Father on our behalf, Jesus. And thank you that we have no longer to fear for that. You have done everything, everything, uh, God, for us. We have done nothing. We are saved by the grace of God. And so I pray that would be our message. And if we in any way experience ongoing rejection, we'd just be encouraged that we don't have that from you anymore because of what you've done. So empower us for mission, God. We pray for the salvation of more people in our life. People don't know this in our lives about Jesus, and they're hell-bound. God, so we pray for opportunities to tell people about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's all about that today. Uh, So just bless us as we respond in worship today and through communion. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.